Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. up next on the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. They actually thought that the United States was going to go to war against Venezuela and steal their water, and we were spies to take water supplies. Now that is just far-fetched stuff, and um, they thought that we were spies. They were searching everything we had. It wasn't just the local police or something. It was their secret service and their military intelligence and they got all our devices that contain any data they're looking for anything that might be kind of like oh they really are spies you know welcome to the podcast i am your host annika on the liveaboard sailing podcast i chat with awesome people who live work and travel on their sailboats my guests share inspiring stories and real life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. This week, I'm bringing you a true adventure story and a very unique one at that. You will hear what it's like to go way off the beaten path to the river systems of South America on a small and ultralight sailboat. My guest is Stephen Ladd, the author of a new book, The Five-Year Voyage, Exploring Latin American Coasts and Rivers. Stephen and his wife started their voyage in Florida, continued down the coastal areas of Central America, and then went through the middle of South America all the way down to Buenos Aires before they turned around for their return journey. It was quite the trip, and as you heard in that snippet, at times, they had to convince officials that they are not, in fact, American spies, just a couple of explorers. Before we get to the interview, I want to extend a warm welcome to my new Patreon supporters. I love that this special community is growing over there on Patreon. And if you are wondering what is going on there and whether you should join, this week there will be a few extra minutes of this interview, as well as a map of Stephen's voyage to give a bit of a visual of his route. And if you go on Instagram or Facebook and look up Liverboard Sailing Podcast, you'll see photos of Steven's boat that might help paint a picture of what their adventure was like. Now here we go with Steven Ladd. I am so looking forward to learning more about the wonderful voyage that you've done and the regions you've visited. But first, let's start with the vessel because it is quite unique. And while I have seen photos of the boat in the book, um, I really want to paint a picture to anyone who's listening. So could you describe your boat a little bit for us? Okay, I I should start with a minor prequel, and that's that the, the first voyage, three years in a 12-foot boat, was obviously in a 12-foot boat. This this book, you're talking about our new book, and it's a 21-foot boat. So it is a Sea Pearl. That's a manufacturing company in the United States. It's modified. It, 
comes as an open boat. We put a minor cabin top on it to enclose it and did some other modifications. It's light, shallow draft, only six or seven inches of draft. Light enough, well, with food and water, it might get up to 1,200 pounds, but that's light enough to row. Row was one of the principal modes of uh, motor transportation. Also sails, obviously, it's a sailboat. And for three of the five years, we had a, a two-horse Honda outboard. So um, is that kind of zeroing in on what you were wondering? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the key points here is considering your route, essentially going from starting in Florida, then hugging the South or um, Central American coast, and then on to the South American rivers, you know, there's still some pretty good passages in there and some long distances. And you mentioned that the draft is just five or six inches. So that to me, it sounds like a very foreign concept being, you know, someone new to sailing anyway. But, you know, having a look at the drafts, they're, you know, five or six feet, not five or six inches. So was that ever, oh, I guess you were used to that before from your, with your previous boat as well. Right. The the fact that, that I had three years on a 12-foot boat, that boat also drew about six inches of water and was much lighter. It, it only weighed 250 pounds. That boat was light enough to drag it up on the beach at night. Now, this 21-footer, we couldn't drag it up on the beach at night, but we could beach it. We could go to the beach, nudge up, you know, and with the help of maybe three people, we could pull it up. But the, the I think the key thing to think about with, with the boat and what you're using it for is the range of things that the boat can do and what what it's degree of optimality is for these different things and so you have a boat that can do a range of things but that doesn't mean that you want to be at the extremes of anything you minimize the extreme so with the boat being so shallow draft and light you don't really want to be out in the ocean for long passages but it's unavoidable at times and so you do that and um then it's at times it would have been bigger better to have a bigger boat such as the long passages, but at times it would have been better to have a smaller boat, such as the mini portages that we did. And um, for the portages, it was unconveniently big, and for the passages, it was unconveniently small. But it was able, but the range allowed you to do all those things. Yeah, so in that sense, that's kind of a good, good happy medium because in the end of the book, you do compare like, yes, it was actually, it was a too small of a boat, but actually it was too big of a boat for these two reasons. Cause of course, you know, you can't quite go through all the rivers without having it, uh, go on land a little bit on, on top of a, a truck or something else. So, um, that is, uh, that's an interesting point that, uh, every boat has its range and its happy medium, uh, for sure. But uh, you mentioned before that you've done the other trip three years on a 12-foot boat. So what attracts you to these smaller, minimalistic, ultralight boats? Well, the choice of it being in a boat is a practical choice, not a not a first order of choice, but a second order of choice. Because I, you know, my first major travel was not boating at all. My first major travel when I was 18 and 19 years old was hitchhiking and riding a motorcycle in Europe, Asia, and Africa. And then I've done a lot of other shorter time frame forms of travel that are cross-country skiing, mountain climbing, and stuff like that. So it doesn't have to be a boat. But um, when, when, I, when I got into the desire to go on longer trips, the practicality of a, of a boat just stood out. You can have everything you need, and you can carry a fair range of tools and equipment and so forth and um you have your little house with with you around all the time so the boat is just very practical it allows of course it allows you to be at um along shorelines and uh you know the shorelines of of coasts or the shorelines of rivers so it's always interesting to be where land and sea come together you you, you can go on land and you've got all the river mouths and and everything you know it's just it's just really beautiful to be along coastlines and on rivers and islands. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it does allow you access to many different uh, areas than, say, uh, a bigger sailboat would do. Because, of course, sailboats can't go to all these smaller rivers or uh, or some of the rivers at all. And they certainly won't be transported on top of a truck for uh, for any length of time. So um, it's an interesting choice. And I guess it's almost, uh, I've noticed, you know, with housing, there is a bit of a trend to go into tiny houses and minimalism and that size. So you kind of took that concept into the boating world, which is uh, kind of cool. But you covered multiple countries on this trip in Central and South America. And it seems to me that you and your wife, Ginny, were both very resilient throughout this whole voyage. Uh, Because you describe a few instances in the book where you were robbed or almost robbed. And on one occasion, I think it was in Costa Rica, uh, people literally stole the day packs off your backs in the middle of the day. So I think there's a fair number of people who would have just given up at that point or at least changed their plans after the first or the second such encounter. But uh, you kept going for years and years to come. So I am interested in hearing what drove you to keep going despite all the this kind of hardship that you faced uh, during the trip. I've I've actually been mugged or held up at knife point um i guess it's four times now in my life i you know i'm kind of used to it i guess um it's not pleasant it's 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 traumatic each time but it's it's just has been worth it to me in my crazy calculation of the of the pluses and the minuses and what you're giving up versus what you're getting it's worth it since 99% of interaction with people are positive the 1% you know, you can handle it. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So it sounds like you definitely believe that still, you know, the majority of people have good intentions. And based on your experience as well, you know, the majority of people are well intentioned and are not out there to take advantage of you. Yeah, even even a teenage robber, maybe um, not, you know, if you got to know him, which I didn't, but it may turn he may turn out okay, too. You know, he's only 15 years old. <laughs> You come, you visit him 10 years later, he may have a family and go to church every Sunday. Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. And you certainly can't judge a whole country based on one encounter with one individual. So, so like I mentioned, you know, your travels took you through multiple countries. And because of your smaller boat, it allowed you a lot of access to sort of untouched regions, uh, many of which are a little bit uh, less wealthy, where there are just not as many opportunities for the locals. And you describe a few uh, occasions on the book where there were some, shall we call them, entrepreneurial locals who demanded some kind of a fee that was obviously made up for, uh, you know, whether it was for you know, mooring your boats or looking after it or whatever that might be. So how did you navigate these kind of situations when you were obviously traveling on a tight budget yourself as well? But of course, in the end, you are much more privileged than some of the people that that were in these local communities. So that's an interesting balance. And I always wonder how to navigate these situations myself when I'm traveling. So how do you deal with the, these kind of... Well, um... As far as people trying to take advantage of us financially, I can't think of any cases where that happened in what you, well, I was going to say in like the private market. Um, when you're, in some of these countries, the the private market has a certain amount of um, haggling, you know, uh, negotiating that the prices may not fir- be firm. In those cases, well, that you're, you're in uncharted territory. You have to just figure things out there. That wasn't so much the case. Most of the places we were in had firm prices, and and you could pretty much rely on them. But but the um but I have been in the other. I have been in the other. Haiti is a country where everything's up for grabs. You you can't just buy anything based on what they say they're going to charge you. You have to figure out what the price should be. But um, in this voyage, we didn't go to Haiti and. The what we did run into were uh, government officials in a couple three countries that would take advantage of us as as much as they could. So um, the biggest one was well there was there was Nicaragua. They kind of had us over a barrel and took three hundred dollars from us. 
And then Venezuela took a total of about 500. They should take some maybe for entry fees and so forth, but $500 is too much. They just, um, see they can. And so they do. Um, and then at other, then ongoing in Venezuela, they would have taken more if we hadn't stood up to them. There are people along the way who try to demand a bribe and we just don't pay. But sometimes you can get away with not paying and sometimes you can't. And, um, you have to figure each each case out. <clears throat> you know, there, there are degrees of bluff going on on their part. You know, you have to kind of suss out how much of what they're saying can be, whether you can call their bluff or not. Yeah, and I, can, I guess that is the key point, whether you can call them out on the bluff and how certain are you that you know, there's some extra on the on the pricing here, or, you know, whether it's an actual, you know, permits or legal paper that you need, or is it just another way to make money? And yeah, it's an interesting thing. There is kind of a matter of principle, I don't really want to be cheated and so forth. And so I'll, I'll kind of dig into it and resist to a pretty high degree, until a point where maybe I've I've wasted, you know, pretty soon I see I'm not getting anywhere. I'm going to have to pay something. And so then I do, you know, the minimum thing. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that also depends, you know, on the situation, who is asking and how they're asking as well. And, uh, you know, can you negotiate on <laughs> what's being offered? So there's always these interesting, uh, I guess, negotiations or situations going on <laughs> when traveling. But uh, you mentioned Venezuela there, and uh, your voyage was now a few years ago, and Venezuela uh, back then was a little bit different than it is now, and, but it still had a bit of a sketchy reputation even back then, especially among sailors uh, due to pirates in the area. Um, and today, you know, the country is very different internally, politically. But uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on Venezuela as a country, what it was when you were there. Because back then, it was still, a, you know, a country that a tourist, anyone could go to and would go to see these sites. So how was it? But what were your impressions on Venezuela? So I was there in the early 90s, during my three years in a 12 foot boat voyage. And then I was there with Jenny in the five year voyage that was in about uh, 2011, I guess. And so I've seen it in those two time spans. And each time I spent several months there. And back in the 90s, it was uh, not not so much different from other Latin American countries. But by with the time of Hugo Chavez, of course, um, it's a socialist country. It's got aspects of capitalism and of socialism. It's a mixture. But it's um, the government is socialist and not democratic and um they they're anti-american so but that's just the that's just the government you know it's not the people um the the people often or i'd say any any kind of negative things that happen from the government are balanced if not overbalanced by by the people being very helpful and friendly even like for example that that time when we were in that port off in the uh, Caribbean coast of Venezuela, when some of the some of the worst things were happening as far as the government, and we were kind of on tenterhooks as to whether we were even going to be allowed or have to go back out at sea, we were being given free moorage the whole time by the yacht club. So um, they were tr- do and and you know giving us beers and everything, giving us lunches and stuff. So the it was being counterbalanced, um, but. Uh, Venezuela is, it was the worst country in terms of the bureaucracy. And then I guess in second place, there's Nicaragua. Argentina is very different. It's, it was irritating, but in a very different way. They, they weren't venal. They weren't trying to get our money. What they were was overbearingly, what's the word, patriarchal or something where they think that they should concern themselves with every little aspect of your welfare all day long and all night long. And so they're always bugging you and wanting you to sit down for another three hours with some bureaucrats and some lawyers and fill out a whole bunch more papers. They're just incredibly bureaucratic and all tied up in their own knots and wanting to restrict your freedom because they don't want anybody to take any chances because they wouldn't take any chances. So they shouldn't let you take any chances. 
And uh, that was irritating, but they weren't being nasty about it or trying to get money. It's just the way they are. But it was irritating. Yeah, which is almost more difficult to deal with because they're not doing anything illegal. It's just the way the country works. <laughs> In my uh, previous job, I used to deal with Argentina a little bit and shipping things either to Argentina or through Argentina. And it was always a hassle. I was like, oh, no, do we have to send it to Argentina? Can we not send it to Chile? And I bet there's still some boxes sitting at an airport storage somewhere that were supposed to go somewhere else, but never made it out of the airport because of bureaucracy and paperwork and whatever else was missing. Or And it wasn't about fees. It was about paperwork and, and that kind of things. Uh, but what I do find interesting in Argentina, and I don't know if this has changed since then and I would travel there in 2015 I think but this sort of dual currency business and I don't know what it's actually called but there is this sort of way you get money from the bank and way you get exchange money you know in the shoe store or you know restaurants or whatever it is that is really important for a traveler because it money is, matters yeah. it does yeah, and it goes a long way especially when you're traveling on a budget you want to make the most of your dollars and, and turn them into the most amount of pesos you can. Um, did you deal with this on an ongoing basis when you were in Argentina? Yeah. we. So that kind of situation where the different types of money, well, what we're really dealing with is countries that don't have a free market with respect to their own money. They They artificially establish their rates instead of the market establishing their rates. But you can never entirely do that because everybody knows that that's false. It's being artificially imposed. So there's always a black market. And the question is then how you can get around, how you can operate in the black market. The black market isn't a physical place where you can go there. The black market is different subterfuges that you can resort to that work, but may have a little bit of danger here and there. So in both cases, Venezuela and Argentina, we had to either bring in cash, U.S. 20 or $100 bills, that could then be exchanged in local, you might say, black markets. It might, in um, Venezuela, sometimes, oddly enough, it was the local men's store. Now, why the men's store? I don't know. But it was the men's store you go to. In another case, it might be a, a shoe store or just anybody who's an entrepreneur who knows how to deal with that will will take will get will exchange money for you at say double what you could normally get or fifty percent more. It's worth it, you know, if you can get fifty percent more. Of course, you want to do that. And then um, and then other things can happen where it doesn't have to be that you go in with U.S. dollars. Maybe you you go in with the currency of the country you're in just before that one. So if you're going into Venezuela, you might go in with Paraguayan. Those are called Guaranis. You can there's kind of like a black market for them too. So there's different ways you can do it. Yeah, that is such an interesting thing. It's always so intriguing to figure out these small little things when you're traveling. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Um, one thing I am curious, uh, as you are an American and you were traveling as American in, you know, Venezuela, for example, in which I think at that time, you know, or at least now the, the political leadership is not too fond of the United States. So did you ever come into any, uh, or did you ever come across any challenges because of your nationality? Because of when you showed your passport, it's like, ah, Americans. Really only in Venezuela, they they kind of 
they almost couldn't believe that we were even they didn't say we couldn't come in there wasn't any law saying that americans can't come but they were kind of surprised that we were even coming there there were no other americans there everybody else all the other americans had kind of gotten the hint you know you're not really wanted <laughs> we showed up anyway and hey we want our permits will you give them or not you know and uh and they they kind of were taken aback at that and we just kept going and we went into the remote regions and they put up more and more resistance, but it never came up to being a total resistance. So, like, the key point was at Puerto Ayacucho, and that's at the upper point of the lower Orinoco, or the lower point of the upper Noco. It's where the lower and the upper Orinoco come together, and that was a key point. That's the last civilization. And we um, we had assistance. We had this really helpful man, and he knew how to work that system. And they, um, the officials, just couldn't even believe hardly that we were that we had the nerve to come and want to do what we wanted to do to go in there where the Indians are. Those Indians, they can't be subjected to the evil machinations of some American capitalists. Those are Indians, and they're like fragile gentle people and we have to protect them and don't let anybody there and they're worried about their water they actually thought that we were going to they actually thought that um the united states was going to go to war against venezuela and steal their water because they have lots of water and we were spies to take water supplies now that is just you know i mean this is pretty far-fetched stuff you know and um they thought that we were spies. They were searching everything we had multiple times. They had all these different... It wasn't just the local police or something. It was their secret service and their military intelligence and all these different people they examining. They, they, and this is the only time it's ever happened to me. They, they got all our devices that contain any data, you know, and they're, they're literally searching our hard drives and our SD cards and our... They're looking for anything that might be kind of like, oh, they really are spies, you know? <laughs> yeah, that sounds really stressful as well. Because, of course, you, you know, you have, you know, all the data and photos and everything on those, on the computers and the memory cards and such. But uh, you mentioned, you know, the indigenous peoples and always you went through some remote areas. And, you know, if you kind of look at your route throughout these gigantic rivers in South America, and you kind of zoom out and out and out, and there's still nothing around there. Like, there, it's very uh, remote. I would love to hear about the your experiences with ind indigenous peoples out there. And did you ever feel too isolated from the rest of the world? Well, I think this is a good time for me to point out. It isn't directly answering your question, but it'll, it'll come to it. The fact that we kind of realized as time went on what our boat could do. We This voyage, unlike my first one, it, it kind of came about in a evolutionary way, not pre-planned. And it just became apparent that this boat we had, because we talked about already the, the, the range of capabilities that it had, it, it allowed us to, we realized at some point, we could go right into those rivers. We could go up the rivers because we now had a two-horse outboard. We could get to some place and we could get a, um, all we need is to have a road network of some sort, place you know, road between two places. We could get a portage to the other side of a divide and get onto the river going down the other side. And then at that point, the whole continent of South America was open to us. Okay. So we realized at some point that we could do that. There's no stopping us. We kept going up the Orinoco, down the Rio Negro, down the Amazon, up the Madeira, up the Guapare, down the Paraná, down the, down the Paraguay, down the Paraná. And that took us to Buenos Aires, Argentina. That's the first half of the tr of the South American part of the trip. Well, that's going right through the middle of the continent. There's no more interior, way deep, remote stuff than that. That's right through its guts. And so we went where all the people still are. We were not going as anthropologists. We weren't experts in that. We weren't like making a point to go to their villages and spend time with them. But we were just in their environment and we would see them and we would spend some time with them. Like we'd be going up a river and a good place. We'd always want to find a place to camp. I say camp. That just means we find a place to stop for the night with our boat, typically tied to a branch. If you're going up a river, the easiest thing to do is either you nudge up onto a beach or you nudge up and tie to a branch or something, or you tie to 
uh, snags sticking up out of the water, or you can anchor too, but whatever you are, you're able to go ashore. And wherever that place is that's convenient for you is typically convenient for people who already might be there, such as indigenous people. So mostly it's uninhabited. It's it's a very uninhabited part of the world or not densely populated, but whatever Indians there are, there are chances are you're going to run, in, run into them. You'll see maybe their house and they'll they'll come and talk to you and, and stuff. And um, you'll see them on their boats, whether it, with or without a motor. It typically is a dugout canoe, either with or without a motor. And um, times there, there's a, a more substantial village that we came to and we went to that village just for social purposes. And each, see the the different tribes are none of them really huge. There's and they don't cover that big areas usually. So each experience might be a, a different type of tribe speaking a different type of language, which doesn't really matter to us because we don't speak those languages anyway. So you look for somebody that speaks Spanish is the most likely thing. Yeah, Spanish. Yeah, exactly. And and how were you generally received by the by the communities that you went by? Uh, was it primarily being ignored or being welcomed in? I think of frankly, I think of South American Indians as being very similar in a way to North American Indians. I I I used to work for an Indian tribe, so I think I know a little bit of what what North American Indians, you know, maybe you should say Native Americans, but they themselves usually say Indians, so. I don't tend to worry about that terminology too much, but the um, they're um, generally very nice people and uh, rather docile and quiet in both continents. You know, um, obviously down there they're much poorer. I remember being with Indians in well, this was Panama, and very poor people. They just have to go out and try to plant some plants and then go back a few days later and find where they had planted something and take it back and eat it. They have to do that every day because they have no surplus, no reserves. They're they're totally subsistence, agriculturally based. Many of the Indians are this way. And one time one of them asked me, one of those Indians says, what are the Indians like in America? And I said, well, they're, they're still Indians, but they're like you, they're like you, but they're Americans at the same time. That's kind of both, you know. And he said, well, do they have cars, for example? And I said, yeah, oh yeah, they do have cars. And he goes, wow, Indians that have cars? That was like a mind bender for him. That's interesting because, of course, yeah, they their view of all of that is probably very different. And also, they're probably not that exposed to, say, tourists visiting and coming from, you know, along the river because they are so remote. But that's very interesting that they were kind of wondering about that, like, well, and, and you know, knew that, you know, how are the, you know, our kind of communities back up north. So that's really interesting, um, interesting, so we say anthropological inquiry. <laughs> and here's another one that, that if, if you found that interesting, you'll probably find this one interesting. We... This was in Brazil on the Araguaia River. There was an area where it's all a tribe of Indians called the Carajás. And they are in a kind of in-between state. They still, were, for example, wear tattoos over much of their body. But their economy is kind of 50% um, evolved or trans transitioned towards a, a more modern economy. And the... Um, well, the main aspect of that transition being that the, the government gives them a fair amount of assistance. They used to plant yucca or manioc or something and then harvest that and eat that. But now they're given subsidies and they don't have to work very much anymore. They, they, I, they, this is as told to me by one of the people there. His, he said his ancestors used to have farms, but they don't anymore, really. They come into town and they get food based on their, whatever they call their assistance. And um, that that person who I was talking to, that Karajas guy, he, um, he, he also had tattoos on his body, but his clothing was largely Western. And um, he, what to me was kind of funny, he, he was a biologist. Um, he was, he was, he had gone to college, you know, look at him, you, you wouldn't have thought that's somebody who has a college degree, but he did, you know, and so he saw first world as well as third world aspects of things equally, and he had gone to 
you'll know this having read the book, but he had gone to a exchange program in the United States with the Arapaho Indian tribe. And so he understood, and he had lived with the Arapahoes. And he said, they're pretty much like them, you know, the Arapahoes, the Karajas, yeah, all kind of the same thing. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it is interesting, for sure. I find these sort of, uh, you know, encounters with the local populations very interesting, because obviously not everybody goes along the most remote regions of South America and meets these people. So there isn't a lot of, you know, travel blogs or, or what have you out there about this. So, so it's very fascinating to hear about these uh, these kind of experiences. And then there's a lot of them in the book. So I, I, uh, I really enjoyed reading them or about them as well. So we've obviously, you know, we focused on, we mentioned rivers, you went through these rivers, and just in case somebody's thinking about European river cruising and how quaint that is, can you just paint a little bit of a picture of what kind of rivers we're talking and what were some of the challenges of navigating these kind of gigantic river systems? Well, in some ways, I'm sure it's a lot easier in, I haven't navigated in the, the rivers in Europe I just imagine that there might be well locks you have to deal with. Um, there might be more more boats that you have to worry about not running into more this danger of collision, I suppose. But um, in the South American rivers, navigationally, it's generally pretty easy. These are big rivers. There's plenty of room, you know. And you, if you're going upstream, you want to stay close to the bank because the the current People tend to exaggerate currents. They tend to say, oh, it was flowing five knots. It, typically, that's an exaggeration. Most rivers go, you know, it might be one knot. It might be three knots. It, more than three knots is not very common. I'd say an overall average is probably about two knots. So you have to, you have to beat two knots. And um, if you're hugging the bank, you might have to beat only one knot. There's a big difference when you're being right close to shore and out towards the middle. Big difference. And so you're always hugging the bank. And um, navigationally, your challenge there is to not hug it too close to hit things. You know, where there might be whatever there is that you don't want to hit them. And um, you're reading the current. Like if you're staying close to the bank, but then the river, you're, you're coming to a bend of the river. Well, you're on the wrong bank at some point. You have to cross over to the other bank. You know, you want to be on the bank that's on the inside of a curve, not on the bank that's on the outside of a curve. And um, that sort of thing. Going down river, there's, it's just the life of Riley. There's no difficulty whatsoever. You're any any speed through the water you add to the river speed itself is just gravy. Um, you can row, motor, sail if you want. You know, um, and then another really nice thing we found when we we're coming um, back towards the United States, we came up through a different set of rivers the Uruguay, Paraná, something called the Paranaiba. We're coming upstream on all these rivers for months. This, 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 this took months to come back up these different rivers. Well, these rivers, this is in a more civilized, developed part of South America, Argentina, Brazil, where the rivers are dammed, as, as is our Missouri River. And if you're coming up a river, it's actually nice to have those reservoirs. I mean, it'd be nicer, perhaps, if there were no reservoirs from the standpoint that it'd be wild and wild rivers. And there, it'd be more, it'd be the natural state. That, I would prefer that, I suppose. But from a navigational standpoint, it's better to have these reservoirs. All you have to do is get around the dam. Well, there's like five or, dams or six or so that we had to get around. And in about half of them, there were locks. That And in some cases, usually they let us through, not always. But if, if they don't let you through or if there is no lock, you have to get a portage. Well, getting a portage on a truck or, or whatever it is, a flatbed truck or um, a trailer, a boat trailer. Somebody else has a boat. That means they have a boat trailer. You can borrow their truck and boat trailer or they will give you a ride, charge you somewhat. Um, that's easy to, easier to arrange than you might think. It's really not that hard usually to find a pretty good deal to take you either it's just around that dam or maybe it's 100 miles or the biggest was about 300 miles because you have to get from one head of navigation to the other of the opposite of that would be foot of navigation well where you can start navigating or i guess head of navigation on the other river makes sense but you're going downhill so um 
the the navigation was uh, was really overall pretty easy. And since it was easy, we realized at some point there's really not much risk here. That it seems like maybe there's some danger we haven't thought of, like anacondas dropping out of the tree on top of us or something, you know. But um, just seemed safe enough, so we went ahead and had a baby because we thought we could, and we did. And then after having the baby, we traveled with the baby for another many months and many thousands of miles. But once we got to the mouth of that river, that was the Araguaia, the mouth of which is actually the same as the Amazon, so it's like we're out of the, at the mouth of the Amazon, Jenny and the baby had to fly home because open sea would not work with the baby. Yeah, for sure. That would be a, a little bit of a too risky and uh, probably get a little bit crowded in the, inside the boat as well. But uh, let's get back to the, the birth of your son, George. So you chose Brazil as the location. Was there any particular reason, which is just practical, that, well, Brazil's right there. It's a you know, modern country. We'll just go there. It was mostly Ginny's choice. She was blown away by by the beauty of Brazil, particularly the the Rio Negro region, the the parts of Brazil that we were in first, and uh, the, the the waters. The the main reason there that 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 that's special is that the Rio Negro, the definition there is Black River. Well, black is not what you might think. Black it's black because it's got a tannic acid. It has no sediment. It's clear in the sense of sediment. If you if you take just like a um, a glass and hold it up to, of it and hold it up to the light, it's totally clear. It's very clear, but it has a tannic acid. So, in the, the the amount of water of a glass, you'll be able to tell. There's a little bit of a tint there, kind of a tea color. But once you get try to look through, say a foot of it, it looks kind of black. And once you get to say three foot, it's totally opaque. It's black in that sense. Well, that tannic acid. Um, precludes all mosquito growth. There are no mosquitoes in the whole region. And that made such a difference. Oh, yes, that would make a difference, uh, for sure. I'm from northern Finland, so I'm very familiar with uh, very annoying mosquitoes. But of course, the ones in Finland don't tend to carry any dangerous diseases. But I can appreciate the fact of not, you know, if there's an opportunity not to have mosquitoes around, I would absolutely take it. Yeah, so so Jenny Jenny just well, it wasn't that wasn't the only reason she loved Brazil. She just loved the Brazilian people, and they they are lovable people. They're wonderful people, and so she she said, "Let's ha- have it in Brazil, have him in Brazil." And so that's what we did. Although we were in a part of Brazil that's where three countries come together, and we could have had it in any of those countries, or we could have had it in Uruguay, and and uh, that would have been fine too, as far as I'm concerned. Well, what about languages? Brazil is obviously the only Portuguese speaking country, and you know, you were on this trip total five years. So what were your Spanish and Portuguese language skills when you started and when you finished? I, from my first voyage, learned Spanish there. If, you, if you're traveling for three years, you might as well learn the language. That's, that's a long enough time period in which it pays to go ahead and learn the language, right? And so um, I, was, I was good at Spanish, and, but not totally fluent, but good enough. And then in this trip, when it came to be in Portuguese instead of Spanish, that is, when we got to Brazil, the uh, that sounded very strange to our ears. We were used to Spanish, then we're here in Portuguese, and the music is totally different sound and feel to it. Um, it we had a bit of a culture shock there, but we got Rosetta Stone on our laptop, and we just sat in our cabin at night doing the Rosetta Stone lessons and reading books in in Portuguese and getting Portuguese English dictionaries. And pretty soon I was about the same place that I had been having to speak in Spanish as I was in Portuguese. But as time goes by, I've forgotten the Portuguese, but I haven't forgotten the Spanish. Okay, so you got your language skills, you know, you've got your years of experience, and you mentioned before that it was time for you to continue or finish the journey by yourself while Ginny and George flew back to uh, United States. How was that change? Uh, you know, you spent so much time in such a small space with your wife and, and then your son, but, and then you continued on by yourself. How was that? Did you feel lonely? Did you go out and seek the company of other people who were uh, cruising? Or Okay, let, let me answer that kind of practical aspect, but first the 
navigational aspect. The my the bulk of my experience at the beginning of our five year voyage was in a twelve foot boat. Twelve foot boat obviously can be single handed. The twenty one foot boat I was always with my wife. I didn't have to single hand. But then when she flew home, I did have to single hand. But by that time, I was so used to that boat, I was able to single hand without any difficulty. And um, I was somewhat lonely that time. I, I knew that it might be said that I should have not even worried about it. I should have just come home with uh, Ginny and George. Um, but I didn't. You know, I wanted to finish it enough that I was able to give up being away from my family for what ended up being five months. But when the shipwreck or capsize, whatever you want to call it, occurred, then that was in the Dominican Republic, and I'd made it about two-thirds of the way back to the United States. Um, the uh, the fact that the masts were gone, the sails were gone, the rowing, the rowing possibility was all gone, the motor had some damage too, that was, and it's in the Dominican Republic, which is one of the worst countries for trying to get anything shipped to you. It just wasn't worth it to figure, do all that and spend another month away from my family. So I sold what was left of the boat and that was the end of it. Yeah. And I think it is remarkable in itself that you made it by yourself from roughly, say, northern part of South America all the way to the Dominican Republic by yourself. And what I found really interesting when you did capsize on the boat that actually it did not suffer that much damage you said there was no water inside the boat and I was I couldn't believe it and of course for anyone listening just that I wanted to mention that the masts weren't really like you know a keel step mast like you would have in a sailboat but more of a uh, actually can you describe it how were they uh attached i know you would sort of rotate your sails or reef your sails by rotating the masts and such so what what were the masts like they're simply stuck into sockets they're they're tubular aluminum that go into a, a socket and there's no leakage because the the socket is a tube that goes all the way to the to the floor and um so the water can't leak in unless the, there's some breakage. The the only reason the masts don't come out is that there is a vang that holds the hold the whole thing down, you know. And um, so in that uh, capsize, it was the boat. It was a. It happened so fast. It's impossible to say exactly. You know, when the waves coming, was it a perfect pitch pole? Which implies you just go in the same direction, but now you've done a somersault. It was either that. Or it was going one way or the other, which gives an element of broach to it. But whatever it was, it happened, boom. And it was at least one. It might have been two. And um, that means that means that wave, it was 20 feet tall, at least, you know, because it was enough to, wow. And um, it it happened so fast, you, you don't, you can't see it. It, it happens so fast that it just, boom, is like an explosion. And um, I was underwater. I was... I had on my tether and my clip, you know, and the um, I was being towed because the boat was kind of being pushed by a wave, and whereas I was underwater, so I was being pulled, but it was pulling me kind of sideways, and then and then what it was pulling on was was really just a belt, and the belt broke off. It didn't really matter. I I was I was in shallow water. The being tethered was irrelevant at that point. I didn't need to be tethered anyway, and. So I come up, and um, I'm kind of dizzy from the spinning. I'd been in a spinning action. You, you have no – you're just in this big wave. It's like a, being in a washing machine churning, you know. Then you – it only lasts a few seconds. Then you come up, and, oh, well, it's all over. The boat's just sitting there. It's upright. Well, the masts are gone. You know, that's not good. But there's no real danger anymore. The the um, It was at the pass of a lagoon. It was a – but it wasn't really a pass. I thought it was a pass, but it wasn't really a pass. Momentarily, there were no waves there. But when I did come through, there were waves. And so, yeah, the boat succeeded in, and this was our design and our effort to make it capsize proof, which is that we put on that cover. So when the water came in, it was 100% watertight. And then we put in that, those tanks and bins. The tanks and bins are made out of heavy aluminum tubing but square in section running transversely and some of them were 
tanks, that is, they held water. No one of them held very much. They might hold a gallon or two gallons each. And then the others were the same kind of tubular construction, but the tops, were there were no tops except for the floorboards. So those were our bins. Well, they were all held by the floorboards, and the floorboards in turn are held by these other longitudinal parts. So all that held up, you know, in that action, there was a very slight shifting of some of that stuff, but it 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 succeeded <laughs> in what it was intended to do. It's, it's only the rigging that went away and and my rowing station. Yeah, exactly. And that is quite remarkable. And thankfully, you were not too far out to the sea or relatively close by and, and you yourself felt well, so you, you made it out of there. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure meeting you. So this was a little different liverboard story this time, but my gosh, what an adventure. I would absolutely love to do something like this, travel through some very remote regions without planning the journey too much and, you know, just take in what's around you. If you want to read more about Stephen's expeditions, you can find his book, The Five-Year Voyage, on his website at stephen-ladd.com. That's Stephen with a PH and Ladd has two Ds, but don't worry about the spelling, just check the link in the description. Next time, we talk about something completely different again as we dive into the world of sailing schools and learning to sail. So stay tuned for that episode. As always, thank you for listening. I'll see you next week with more sailing stories. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.